away from Easter. Uh, can you believe we're five weeks away from Easter? There were two, two years ago, I was actually shoveling snow on Easter. We're praying against that this year. Uh, but we're five weeks away from Easter, and Easter for Christians is the, it's the biggest event in our lives. We believe that Easter is the cosmic event of history. It is the moment after which everything changes. Uh, and so we come together and we celebrate that. And so I just wanted to put that in your heart, drop that in your mind today, and ask you to be praying about and thinking about who you might want to invite with you. What family member, what colleague, um, what friend do you want to bring with you to Easter? A lot of times people will come to an Easter service that wouldn't come to anything else. In fact, they're offended if you don't invite them. So you just say, hey, you know, why don't you come to church with me on Easter Sunday? Because that's the, Easter Sunday is, is, is it, right? That's when, we, that's when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is the only event in Christian history that totally, absolutely matters. Everything everything lives or dies on that moment. That's the hinge upon which the whole Christian faith turns. And if he, Tim Keller says that if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to believe everything that he said. And we have to follow him with our whole heart. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why would we bother with him at all? And so that question, that question of Jesus' resurrection is the pivotal question for everyone who is facing this issue of what is, who is Jesus, what is he about, right? I spent, I was just talking to some folks earlier, I spent years of my life grappling with that question personally. I had grown up in church, many of you know the story, but I had grown up in church, grown up in ministers' homes, uh, and, and left the faith at about 19 or 20 years old. And for several years, I was a non-believer, a vocal non-believer. Um, but a- after a time, uh, my life had gone, you know, uh, probably 10 or 12 years living that way. Um, some events and circumstances in my life, my, my father fell ill and made me start to really re-examine what I believed and what this is all about and really, really try to understand who is Jesus, And kind of became obsessed with this idea, began to read a whole host of books about it, Uh, read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, that's who you saw quoted um, there a moment ago, and read through the New Testament again and just started really, really exploring and struggling with that question. Who is he? Like, who was he? And that is a question that I think many of us struggle with. I think you know, throughout our culture and in our, in our world, many people are struggling with that question. Even people who are, you know, affirmed Christians who would say, yes, I'm a, I'm a believer, still struggle with the question, who really was he? I'm going to give you some of the ideas that people have, have, have spoken about Jesus and have uh, some, some ideas that they've come up with to identify him. And one of them is, and you can follow us in your, um, in your uh, sermon notes here if you like to, um, one theme that kind of arises in our culture and in our society, and we hear it sort of prevalently on sensational news shows and on the internet and on YouTube and that sort of thing, we hear this idea that Jesus is a myth, right? That Jesus actually didn't exist, that he's an amalgamation of Greek mythology sort of all pasted together by new uh, first century Jews who were trying to make themselves feel empowered after being oppressed by the Romans. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this view, 
because this view is, is only sort of prevalent um, among a certain group of people, and those are folks that uh, are uh, also wondering if we ever landed on the moon and uh, wondering if the earth, in fact, is round um, and are denying the Holocaust. I mean, th th although this is sort of a, a popular view in, on YouTube and among sort of sensational newscasts, this is not a view that's held by any credible, thoughtful, you know, historian um, or scholar. Um, but it, 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 it sort of bubbles up, and so especially around Christmas and Easter, you'll always see these news stories like, who is Jesus? Did he really exist? Was he married to Mary Magdalene? You'll see all these kinds of ideas about Jesus. And one of the, one of the arguments that, that uh, folks who are sort of Christ myth ardent believers would say is that the, the Gospels don't claim to be firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus, and therefore they're not reliable, and therefore we don't know if Jesus existed, and therefore Jesus probably didn't exist. Is sort of how the argument goes. Um, but every credible you know, historian and scholar would say to you that any first century person, it would be extremely rare for any first century person to have any scrap of documentary evidence about them, unless they were sort of like a king or an emperor, unless they had coins stamped with their names. And yet with Jesus, we have this a massive amount of documentary evidence about him, not from we also have the Gospels, but we also have a ton of evidence about him from his detractors, from people that were not followers of Jesus, people who did not believe in him. You know, we have the first century historian Josephus. We have the historian Tacitus. We have Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor. We have uh, the, the, the Talmud, um, the Babylonian Talmud, which is, you know, sort of opposed to Jesus, and yet you find him all. So we have all of this evidence of Jesus all around, and, and yet some people will still insist that, wow, you know, did he really exist? And not to mention we have four biographies and a history and 22 letters about him, all from the first century. Jesus was a very, very real person, um, and every credible historian and um, uh, professor of history of religion would confirm that, right, and, and overwhelmingly confirm that. There's a guy named Bart Ehrman, for instance. You may have heard of him. He is a sort of a famous atheist scholar. He does not believe in Jesus. He's not a follower of Jesus. But listen to what he says about this Christ myth idea. He says, the views that Jesus did not exist are so extreme and unconvincing to 99.99% of the real experts in the field that anyone holding them wouldn't stand a chance of getting a real job in a university religious studies department. So you can arrive at the conclusion that Jesus was a myth, but you have to limit your scope to sensationalist news items and YouTube videos with cheesy graphics and bad sci-fi music. So if that's your deal, go for it. Um, but if you want to be serious, if you want to get serious about this question, who is Jesus, then you have to dig a little bit deeper. You have to dig in a little bit deeper. Um, a more popular idea about Jesus, far more popular than the idea that he didn't exist, is the idea that he was just a good moral teacher. Um, that he was sort of a good guy, that, you know, he was nice and people liked him, and, um, and he was just sort of a general sort of, almost like a John Denver kind of guy, like, you know, peace-loving, everything's cool kind of guy. Um, I want to I challenge that, but I'm going to need, um, I'm gonna need um, two volunteers. How about Mary Lezecki? Why don't we get you up here? Um, and um, let me see, who do, I, who do we get here? 
This is good. Dolores, how about you? Why don't you come be a volunteer for me for a minute? Come on up here. This is going to be this is going to get interesting. You can already tell, can't you? <laughs> come on up here. Come on up here. I'm going to have you read something. Um and let's just explore what you would think of these people if this is what they had to say about themselves. Dolores, you come up here first. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and you just give me the real answer, okay? And then when I say, tell me a little bit about yourself, I want you to just read this. And, you know, read it with some, some conviction. Yeah, okay? Um, what's your name, Dolores? Dolores Lancaster. Do- Dolores Lancaster. Where are you from? St. Louis, Missouri. Um, what do you do, Dolores? I'm an accountant. You're an accountant. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those of you who do not give up everything you have you have cannot be my disciples. Now, if Dolores said this of herself, I love Dolores, but I'm going to call the authorities. And I'm going to say, we had this young lady in our congregation. That, she just needs some help, <laughs> right? Because Dolores cannot be a sound, good teacher. She cannot be a, she cannot be a good person. She can be a good person, but she's going to be a crazy person. If she says this about herself, unless it's true, right? She's either crazy or she's like, she's like starting a cult and she's going to, you know, populate this with people who think that she's God or it's true, right? Thank you, Doris. Awesome job. We still love you. All right. How about you, Mary? Yeah, go ahead and give Dolores a round of applause. Let me ask you, Mary. Tell, tell me your name. Mary Luzecki. And where are you from, Mary? Alton, Illinois. Alton, Illinois. And uh, what do you do for a living? I'm a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself, Mary? I'm here? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's not blasphemy. It's not blasphemy. No, that's kind of what I'm... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. I was born into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone who looks to me and believes in me will have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. I'm telling you the truth. Whoever believes in me will have everlasting life. I give my followers eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple either. Wow, yeah, yeah, right. Now she's adding to the scripture. Jesus is making stuff up. Wow, you got into that role. Watch out, Chris. This is going to be a tough afternoon. Again, you guys, if Mary, if Mary was to say this about herself, if any of us were to say anything remotely close to this about ourselves, we automatically disqualify ourselves from sound moral teachers. We cannot be sound moral teachers. We cannot be sound philosophers. We cannot be, 
you know, Gandhi-like or Buddha-like or John Denver-like if we say this about ourselves. Right, Mary? Okay, good. I'm just glad. I, I wanted to make sure you got out of character. Thank you. Great job. Um, yeah. Here's the thing. Every shred of evidence indicates that Jesus said these kind of things about himself and that his followers believed that this is who he was. So what does that do to us? What does that do to him? That takes him out of the realm of a good guy. If I were to say any of this stuff to you, I would get fired so fast, right? It would just, you can't say these kinds of things and still be a sound, thoughtful person. You cannot be that. So when we have this view of Jesus, of, of him being just sort of like a good kind of, you know, good guy who taught some good morals and good ethics, we have to ignore the overwhelming evidence of the stuff that he said about himself. We have, to, oh, we have to ignore the overwhelming evidence that he seemed to believe that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? So it just doesn't work to say that he didn't exist. It just doesn't work to say that he was a good moral teacher. Those two, those two designations don't work. So some people would say, well then, I guess Jesus is just irrelevant. It's sort of the third, the third category that people will try to put Jesus in. You can put that slide up, Megan. That Jesus is irrelevant. He was a guy that lived 2,000 years ago. What do we care? Why does it matter, right? Why does it matter who he was? How does who he was affect who I am today? Um, the Yale historian um, Yaroslav Pelikan wrote this. He said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. And a whole number of scholars have pointed out that more books have been written about Jesus than any other person. Dozens of nations have relied upon his teachings as the founding principles for their governance. Within a few decades of his life, his teachings established a new global paradigm of morals and ethics. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of schools have been named after him and grounded in his teaching. Uh, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Oxford were all established by men and women who were inspired by Jesus and his movement. In fact, the, the motto at Oxford is Dominus Illuminatio Mea, which means the Lord is my light. The elevated role of women in Western culture traces its roots to Jesus' teachings about gender equality. Slavery was abolished in Britain and America largely due to Jesus' teachings on the dignity of human life. Hospitals were an innovation of Christianity. One of the greatest humanitarian movements in the world, the American Red Cross, uh, the International Red Cross, rather, was founded by Christians in response to Jesus' teachings about the sick and the suffering, the, the halt, the lime. Uh, the, 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 the lime, the, the lame, uh, and the blind. Jesus' followers, such as Dr. Louis Pasteur, have fueled some of the greatest practical advances in medicine. Modern science arose out of the contemplations of Christian monks who were trying to understand uh, the order of the universe and how it all worked. Everything from education to human rights to public health, all of the stuff that we take for granted, so much of it derived from the teachings of Jesus that we can't, we just simply can't ignore it. It permeates our culture. The life and teachings of Jesus 
have inspired the greatest literature, the greatest art, the greatest architecture, the age of exploration, the rule of law, the separation of powers, the sanctity of life, compassion for the poor, and so much more that we take for granted. The movement that was founded by Jesus, his life and his teachings, has been the most powerful transforming agent in society for the past 2,000 years. No other person, no other religion, no other philosophy, no other nation can, can even come close to matching the impact of this one guy who preached for three years, who never wrote a book, never had a political you know, position, never had any world, worldly wealth or power or prestige. His, his ministry was shorter than the length of time that this church has been open. And yet, within, within a decade after his death, the world had exploded with his influence. So you can love him, you can hate him, but you cannot ignore this man. If you are a thinking person in Western society, you have to grapple with, you have to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And as it turns out, even as we grapple with that question today in our own hearts, so did the people that were alive when he was alive. The book of Matthew is full of people wrestling with that question. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Because there was something so powerful and so unique and so different about him that they just couldn't place him. In fact, there's a passage in um, Matthew where Jesus calms the sea and the storm. And his men are sort of gathered together and it says they were amazed and they huddled together and they said, what kind of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? What kind of guy does this, right? And there's another passage where he's, there's somebody who's oppressed by an evil spirit and Jesus touches him and heals him. And the people that are around there start saying, he must be the son of David. He must be the, the, the Christ, right? And the religious leaders are saying, no, he's, he's full of Satan. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. He's some sort of, he's some sort of nefarious sorcerer, right? He's a, he's a trickster or a sorcerer or he's evil or his, his parents, his, not his parents, his siblings at one point thought he was crazy. Everybody had this idea about who Jesus was, and the longer he was around, these ideas just began to bubble up all over the place, and so many people had so many different ideas. And so about two years into his ministry, Jesus takes his disciples, and they get in a boat, they get on the Sea of Galilee, they go up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, they go 25 miles north of that to an area called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is this very beautiful, lush region just north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's sort of uh, full of, um, there were worshipers there of all different kinds of gods. One of the gods that they predominantly worshipped was a god named Pan. And and Pan was sort of half goat, half human, played a flute. You've probably seen, uh, I think we have a statue of him over at um, the the art museum here. But so there were all these sort of gods and, and idols and, that people worshipped. And Jesus takes his guys up to the, the mouth of the Jordan River where the Jordan River starts to spill out. And he's away from the critics. He's away from the crowds. He's away from the people that, you know, need to get a hold of him. And he's just there with his closest friends. And his purpose for going there was to drill down on this question. He wanted to ask his followers about what they understood about him, Right? 
So he gets them together, and in this quiet moment, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And what's fascinating about the question that he asks is that he gives the answer in the question. This phrase, Son of Man, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself, and the Son of Man has a couple different, different implications. One is it kind of means just what it means, like the Son of a person. It means a human being, right? His, he, he was human, and so he says, you know, Son of Man. It kind of implies humanity. But the other reference to somebody who's really listening to what he's saying is a reference to a prophecy back in Daniel. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling myself the Son of Man. And let me read you the passage in Daniel. Uh, It says, this is the passage that the the prophet Daniel uses this phrase, and then Jesus quotes it. In fact, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than he calls himself anything else. That's his favorite phrase about himself. He says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. It said he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus is saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Do they know that this is me? What are they saying about me? What do they think about me? Um, and so, uh, in, fact, in fact, he calls himself this son of man, and in a later passage, when he uses this phrase in front of the Sanhedrin when he's on trial, that's the phrase that makes them go crazy. When he says, you know, when they say, who are you? And he says he's the son of man. They tear their clothes, and they say, this guy's blaspheming, right? He's claiming to be something so far much more elevated than a man. Um, So here's what they say. So he says, who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 14. They replied, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah. And then others say that you're Jeremiah or maybe you're one of the prophets. Now, here's what they're saying here. These are different people around Jerusalem and Judea who are saying they're trying to figure out who Jesus is, right? And these these are the answers that they're coming up with. What's similar about all of these people is that all of them are dead. Okay, Elijah had died long ago. Jeremiah had died long ago. John the Baptist had died, you know, maybe a year or so earlier, right? And what people are saying is, you can't just be a regular guy. There's something so powerful about you that you must be sort of like a resurrected prophet, a prophet that had died and come back to life, and now you're walking around and you're calling yourself Jesus, but really you're some prophet from old that has come back to life, right? In fact, Herod... King Herod was afraid that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected because Herod had had John the Baptist killed because John the Baptist had called Herod out for sleeping with his brother's wife and it was a mess and, and Herod had him killed, you know, head on a platter. It's a whole other story. But, but he was afraid that Jesus was the resurrected John um, the Baptist. So they're all saying this, you know, all these different things about who Jesus is. And I think what Jesus is driving at with us and with his disciples is this principle, this truth, that a multiplicity of views does not equal a multiplicity of truths. The fact that a lot of people have different ideas does not mean and cannot mean that they are all right. 
right? In our culture, in our society, you will often hear people say, speak your truth, right? There's this sense of, um, of re- what's called relativism through our culture where we say, you know, there, there isn't necessarily a truth. There's your truth. Then there's my truth, right? Um, let me ask you this. Anybody argue um, over, the, over this picture this week? Anybody, anybody argue over this? Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Others of you are going, what is he talking about? So this picture circulated on social media this week like millions of times on Facebook, on Twitter. And the question was, what color is this dress? Does, who, who, who thinks this dress is white and gold as you look at it right now? Really? You guys are crazy. How many people think that this dress is blue and black? All the smart people in the church raise their hands. My wife and I had this debate in bed the other day, had the computer open, and she's saying, it's white and gold. And I'm saying, who are you? This dress is clearly blue and black. Well, I have good news and I have better news for you today. The good news is it's been settled. The better news is it's confirmed by the dress owner. It's actually royal blue and black. All the blue and black people say amen. It's too deep to get into, but somehow that picture picks up different you know, optics and the way our cones work. Sometimes people see it white and gold and others see it blue and black. I don't understand it, but that's just what it is. Uh, the bottom line is <laughs> it can't both be white and gold and blue and black right? The law of non-contradiction says that two statements that contradict each other cannot both be true at the same time in the same sense. They just can't be true. Can't be blue and also white. It's either blue or white, right? And thank God it's blue. Small triumphs. Um, I was arguing for blue and black. Um, But Jesus is saying a multiplicity of uh, of truths, uh, views, doesn't mean a multiplicity of truths. I, I was at a, I saw a car accident. This is quite a long time ago. Small car accident, little fender bender um, on the street, and I just happened to see it. Somebody ran into the back of somebody else, and so I stopped and pulled over and thought, well, maybe I can, you know, be of some use, be of some help, Um, and, you know, got out and made sure everybody was okay, everybody was fine, uh, and was talking to both, both of the drivers, and then an officer came to come and get a report and see what happened, right? And what was interesting is that the officer interviewed the, the, the at-fault driver first, the driver that had run into the back of the other driver. And it was interesting because I happened to be standing there while the at-fault driver gave his view of what happened. And what the at-fault driver gave was his truth. He didn't give the truth. He gave his truth. And I was sitting there listening going, that's interesting because that is not what I saw. And the police officer was no novice. He knows that the person that's at fault is less likely to give the truth about the incident than the person who was not at fault, right? So he's taking this down, and he asked a couple hard questions, and pretty soon the person who was at fault sort of fessed up and said, yeah, I know, I just plowed into the back of this person, right? And the person who had, you know, gotten hit, they were pretty insistent that they wanted the truth spoken. They didn't want his truth. They wanted the truth. And here's what we all do over and over when it comes to questions of God, and especially when it comes to questions of Jesus, a lot of the truth about Jesus is inconvenient to us, and so we want our truth, and we're not digging down to get to the truth. 
we try to, you know, we try to posture ourselves so that we can feel comfortable with our version of truth and not drill down and get to the truth. Who is Jesus really? Um, the truth about Jesus and the things that he says are so overwhelmingly uncomfortable, whether we are an atheist or an agnostic or even a Christian that's been sitting in the church forever. The, the, the words that Jesus says to us can be confrontational, can be offensive, can be difficult to swallow, can be very, very challenging for us. I'm going to read you just a few statements that Jesus, um, I'm not putting these on the screen, but I'll just read a few of statements that Jesus said. He says things like, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if somebody forces you to walk a mile, walk a second mile. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body, body to be thrown into hell. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And you read these kinds of statements by Jesus, and no matter who you are, where you are on the spectrum, you go, I cannot live up to that. I cannot do that. I cannot become what Jesus seems to be requiring of me. And so rather than face this very hard truth about what Jesus says, we want to revert and pull back into our truth, into our version, into our John Denver version of Jesus who kind of agrees with everything I say, I say and who surfs and hangs out and is super cool, right? We don't want to drill down on, you know, the truth. But Jesus keeps pressing. And so he presses his followers who are sitting there with him. So he you know, says, who do people say that I am? They say, there are all these people. Then he gets real with them. And here's what he says in verse 15. He says, what about you? What about you, he says. Who do you say I am? I want to get down to the nuts and bolts of who you think that I am. You've been following me for two years, he says. You've seen me perform miracles. You've heard my teachings. You've seen everything I've got to offer up to this point. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that has rung out across the globe for 20 centuries. What Jesus is saying to his followers in this moment, everything that he's done up, up to this point in Matthew has climaxed to this moment where he's asked them this question, who am I? What, what am I? Who am I? Right? And what he's saying to them and what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me is if you want to get real with God, you've got to get personal with Jesus. You've got to, at some point in your life, come to grips with this question and face this question head on and focus on this question and figure out in your heart of hearts, who is Jesus to you, and it can't be theoretical, and it can't be vague, and it can't be off sort of in the distance, and it can't be just sort of like, well, I don't know, I'm just going to leave that open for, no, this is the biggest question that you will ever address in your entire life. This is the most important question that you can ever, ever address in your heart, in your mind. Who is Jesus? And it's got to get personal. I have a friend who is uh, a writer, his name is Matthew Pauly, and um, he was a Rhodes Scholar, and he, when he was young, he was, he was at Princeton University. And he left Princeton to go spend a year and a half studying 
at the uh, Shaolin Temple in China, and he wanted to learn Kung Fu. Um, and he spent like two years or a year and a half there at that temple, and, and he learned all of this stuff, and then he went on and studied some more and um, came back, and he wrote a memoir about it. And then he wrote, and, and then he got sort of fixated on um, not Kung Fu, but on mixed martial arts. Um, on, you know, uh, mixed martial arts, for those who don't know, it's like boxing, judo, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, all sort of combined into one sport. And a very small percentage of people like the sport, um, and they're all crazy. Um, no, I happen to like it. But, but um, so Matthew got obsessed with this, uh, this sport, right, mixed martial arts. So he wanted to write a book about it. But the problem was everybody who had written books on this were sort of like, armchair critics. They would kind of sit back. They had never done anything. They had never laced up a pair of gloves, and they had kind of sat back and just sort of watched it from afar. So Matthew says, I'm going to write a book, and in my book, I am going to, before I write my book, I am going to train, and I am going to learn what it means to be an MMA fighter. So Matthew Pauly, who's like 40 at this point, goes to Las Vegas, and he starts training with a guy named Randy Couture. Some of you guys know him. He w he's like a legendary fighter in the MMA arena and went through this grueling process at 40 years old. And, he, you know, he's not an athletic, you know, guy at this point in his life. Went through this grueling process that strained him physically, emotionally, mentally, in every way possible, strained him. And then at the end of this six months, he actually put on the gloves and got into the ring and had one professional MMA bout, and it's actually on YouTube, and you can watch it if you type in Matthew Polly MMA. Um, it's not a pretty fight, but um, he got in there, and then he wrote this book, and the reviewers said of this book, here's what his reviewers said. They said, it's hypnotic, it's insightful, it's inspiring, it's the best MMA book of 2012. Why did he get these reviews? Because Matthew Polly made it personal. He went from the theoretical, and he said, I'm going to step into the ring, and I'm going to get personal and try to understand this from the inside out. And I want to challenge you and me today. Let's get personal with this question of who is Jesus. What if we really, really explored that question deep in our hearts? What if Jesus became real to us in a way that's unlike anything we've ever experienced in our life? What if we really, really understood him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come and his spirit has come and entered us and we've become empowered by him to go out and become like him and to be him as a church and to be his body on the earth and go out and transform the world to glorify him? What if that was the reality of who we are? I want to challenge you, pick up a Bible, read through the Gospels, pray, ask God to enter into your heart, ask him to, to let you know who Jesus is, get with other people, get in a life group, join the dream team, get involved with people who are believers and followers of Jesus, and get personal with it. Let, let Jesus get into your life in a way, that's how, that's how his guys came to understand him, is that they, they spent time with him, two years they traveled with him before this question came up. So after a moment, after Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? He's in Caesarea. He's there with his guys. Um, and Peter decides to speak up. Now, Peter, usually in the Gospels, when Peter speaks up, it's kind of an awesome moment because Peter says, like, the craziest off-the-wall things. Uh, John MacArthur says about Peter, he's like, he's the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. Because every time he says something, you're like, no, man, 
that's not right. That's not right, Peter. Um, he's the guy that, like, after Jesus had talked about peace and turning the other cheek and all this kind of stuff, they're at the, they're at the garden. Some guys tried to arrest him, and Peter, like, pulls out his sword, whacks off the guy's ear. You know, it's like, no, Peter, excuse me. Let me get the ear. Let me put it back on. This is not what, you know, this is not us. Um, but anyway, Peter, who normally says, this is how we, this is why we like Peter, right, because he's us. Um, but Peter, in this moment, says probably the most important words in the Bible, certainly in Matthew, maybe in the Bible, because he identifies unequivocally who Jesus is. And Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And in that moment, Peter gets it. Peter understands who Jesus really is, that Jesus is the holy one of God that he is the son of the living God. For two years, he's been following Jesus. And in this moment, he gets it. And he says, you're the one. You're the anointed one. You're the alpha and the omega. You're the savior. You're the, the mighty counselor, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the word of God, the bright and morning star. He says, you're it. I get it. I see who you are. You're the Christ, the Messiah. And what's more, he's, he's implying and saying, and I am with you. I am yours. I belong to you, heart, soul, mind, and body. You're the one, and I am going to follow you. Can we say that today of ourselves, that we see him for who he is and that we have thrown in our lot with him, that we are followers of his and all of the implications that that means? Jesus' response to Peter is really fascinating. Jesus replied to Peter, he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, he says, but it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, I know you, you know, love you, man, but you know, you, don't, you didn't come up with this on your own, right? My Father in heaven revealed this to you. And Jesus is saying to Peter and to us that spiritual illumination requires spiritual intervention. All of the preaching, all of the books, all of the rationale, all of the apologetics, all of everything that I could say or that anyone else could possibly say to you is not going to open up your eyes to the reality of who Jesus is unless God intervenes in your heart himself and reveals Christ to you. There's a moment a few chapters back in Matthew, in Matthew 8, where Jesus is in this village called Bethsaida, and they, the people bring him this blind man, and they say, you know, can you heal him? And Jesus takes this blind man, and he takes him, and he says, come on, let's get out of here. So he takes him away from the village, away from everybody. And, you know, the, the villagers are way off in the distance. And the scripture says that Jesus takes this man who's blind, and he spits in his eyes. And then he puts his hands on him. And when he takes his hands off, he says to the man, can you see? And the man opens his eyes. And he says, I see people, he said, but they look like trees. Like, they look like trees walking around. They're not, they're not clear. Like I can't fully see. I can kind of see, but I can't see clearly. I'm not sure what I'm seeing. So the, the Bible says that Jesus, again, puts his hands on his eyes, and then he takes them off, and he says, now can you see? And the Scripture says that the man then could see clearly. And I think some of us are that blind man. 
Some of us are blind to who Jesus is. We don't know who he is. We're totally, utterly lost and confused about the question of who is Jesus. And I pray that if that is you, I pray that you feel welcome in this house. Because I want you to hang around with the people of Jesus. And I want you to hang around with the scriptures and the words of Jesus. Because sometimes it takes a little while to get to understand who Jesus is. So if that's you, hang out with us. Some of you are like the blind man midway through the miracle. And you say, you know, I kind of get it. I kind of see who he is. Um, you know, maybe you're like the people in you know, the first century who are like, maybe he's some kind of like crazy, amazing prophet that I can't totally get my head around, right? And you kind of see, but you don't see clearly. You're just kind of close to who he is, kind of close, but not exactly who he is. And I pray today that you and I and every single one of us would be like the blind man at the end of the miracle where we can see clearly where the light of God enters our hearts and we can see clearly who Jesus is, that we will be illuminated by his power and by his presence because knowing who Jesus is is the crux of your life. It is the transformative moment for your life. When I got down on my knees just a few weeks before Easter in 2005 and prayed a prayer that just, you know, in retrospect, it sounds crazy. I prayed the prayer. I said, God, if you're real, then I want you to reveal yourself to me. I want to know. I've got to put this question to bed. Who is Jesus? And if you're not real, then I'm just a guy talking to myself in a room in my apartment. And God entered my heart and transformed me and changed my life. And it has been the absolute center of my life. It has been the hinge of my life. There was the BC, and then there's the AD. And for me, everything changed from that moment on. Now, everything didn't change in that moment. I didn't suddenly become, you know, super righteous man, and I'm still not that by any stretch. But that was the moment when I was able to affirm, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And I follow you, and I'm giving my life to you, and I'm following you. That was the moment that changed everything. And so I pray for each and every one of you today that if you haven't decided that in your heart, that you would open your heart and, and ask God to reveal himself to you under the actions, if you will, of this sermon. The Scripture says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open unto you. Only God can illuminate who Jesus is. And all you can do is ask. He says, whoever asks will receive. Whoever seeks will find. Whoever knocks, the door will be open to them. And then I pray that you'll just spend time answering that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And maybe you can't answer that question right now. Or maybe you can answer it right now, and then it might change next week, and then it might change. But at the end of this series, I pray that each and every one of you will have a firm, powerful, strong sense of who Jesus really is. Because I believe, you guys, that if we as a church come together and fully, fully grasp who Jesus is in our life, it will absolutely not change us only personally, one-on-one, but it will 
powerfully transform our church through which we will powerfully transform our community. We will free the captives. We will bring joy for mourning. We'll bring praise for the spirit of heaviness. We will, we will transform our community, our city, and our world by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in every single one of those who can say Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Amen? Amen. I pray that for you today. Let's close our eyes and, and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we ask, Lord, that on this most important question, that you would speak into our hearts and that you would reveal yourself to us. It's not enough to say that Jesus is a myth. It's not enough to say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. It's not enough to say that Jesus is irrelevant. Those answers just don't work. And so we have to wrestle with and struggle with who is Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we ask today that the power of your Holy Spirit would enter into the hearts and minds of every single one of us, soften our hearts, break open the soil of our hearts, let the word drop into our hearts, take root, grow, and flourish, that we might, Lord, become trees of righteousness, planted by the water, that we might bring nourishment, that we might bring shelter, that we might bring shade to those who are in need. Give us your spirit today, O Holy Father, Come into our hearts, transform us, and make us yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.